Blog Talk Radio. Eastern family. My name is Neil Holland, a former captain with Eastern Airlines, and along with Harry Lindquist, a former pilot scheduler with Eastern, and his wife, Linda Lindquist, we produce a weekly program called Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern Airlines, as told by the people of Eastern and friends known as the Eastern family. Our stories of Eastern include those from all departments of this great legacy airline. We find these stories from publications like Repartee, the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, The Wings of Man, a book compiled by Mr. Roland Moore and Vito Borelli, The News Wing, a newsletter of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport from 1927 to 1933, and other publications as we find them, and stories from you, the members and friends of the Eastern family. It all started flying the mail from New York to Atlanta, Jacksonville, Miami, with the many stops along the way in open cockpit mail planes. Next came the carrying of passengers along the same route system along the east coast of America. From the first hostesses in the fabric Kurdish aircraft to the stewards and stewardesses of the great silver fleet to the flight attendants in the jet age, Eastern would lead the way with many firsts in the airline industry. It did not start out as Eastern Airlines but took on many changes along the way. In early 1929, Clement Keyes, a former financial editor of the Wall Street Journal, decided to purchase a small Philadelphia-based airline known as Pitcairn Aviation Incorporated. It had been formed September 15, 1927. Keyes then sold Pitcairn to North American Aviation, then a holding company for a number of airline and aircraft companies in in which he was one of the key shareholders. Early in 1930, Pitcairn's name was changed to Eastern Air Transport Incorporated, and soon after, the airline expanded its its routes to include Atlanta, Miami, Boston, and Richmond, Virginia. Its fleet at the time consisted of three Ford and two Falker FX aircraft, followed by Curtis Condors and Kingbirds, 
World War I ace Eddie Rickenbacker served as general manager of Eastern. There is so much to tell about the history of Eastern that we decided to let the people of Eastern tell the story. So let's continue on with tonight's broadcast of memories of a great airline, Eastern Airlines, as told by its people. On this episode of our Eastern Airlines radio broadcast, we're going to learn about the legendary Eastern Captain Dick Merrill. This comes to us from the book The Wings of Man. The story is entitled The Big Dick Merrill Story Told by Don Bedwell. He was a colorful airmail pilot who logged 45,000 hours. That's 45,000 hours. Even in an era where the old public thought airline pilots were larger than life, Dick Merrill was a giant. A colorful airmail pilot in the 1920s, Henry Tyndall Dick Merrill commanded two record-setting transatlantic round trips in the mid-1930s. As Eddie Rickenbacker's favorite captain and check pilot at Eastern Airlines, Merrill also set speed records in aircraft ranging from the Douglas DC-2 to the Lockheed L-1011 TriStar. He charmed and eased the fears of passengers ranging from royals to Broadway stars and Damon Runyon-esque hoods. During World War II, he flew the legendary hump over the Himalayas to supply besieged, besieged Allied forces. Returning to EAL after the war, in 1948, Merrill helped save a crippled Lockheed Constellation during an in-flight emergency. When he closed his line-flying logbook after a half-century, he had recorded 44,111 hours. More, officials told him, than any other U.S. airline pilot. Because of modern restrictions on commercial pilots' flying time, his record may never be broken. Dick then went on to fly for another 20 years. By the 1960s, when my job as aviation writer for the Miami Herald allowed me to get to know Merrill, he had reluctantly accepted mandatory retirement from Eastern under the new age 60 limit rule, although by that time he was 67. It finally took the FAA to put me out of business, he complained after his final New York-Miami flight in October 1961. Yet executives widely, wisely asked him to continue flying for the airline as his captain emeritus, piloting engine-out ferry flights and handling public relations tasks to make friends for EAL as he had done for more than 30 years. I wasn't surprised when he agreed in 1966 to help pilot a round-the-world odyssey in an executive jet. Dick enthusiastically accepted the invitation from the sponsoring Rockwell Standard Corporation, asking, when can we get started? He phoned entertainer Arthur Godfrey, a pilot he had once checked out in the Constellation, and invited him to join a four-man cockpit crew. Merrill and Godfrey would share the flight with Fred Austin, a TWA captain, and Carl Keller, an engineering test pilot. Sadly, they had no room aboard for a rider, so I had to cover the event from Miami. The twin-engine jet commander departed from New York LaGuardia on June 4, 1966. It returned to LGA 90 hours and 23,524 miles later after touching down in 20 cities around the world. Those included an unscheduled stop in Karachi where suspicious Pakistani fighter pilots forced him to land. The journey set 21 international speed records, but record setting was nothing new to Merrill. 
He told me in a 1972 interview how he broke speed records between several pairs when EAL introduced its constellations in 1947. Four of his county records in the 300 mile per hour range remain on National Aeronautic Association books, Atlanta, Chicago, and Return, New Orleans, New York, and Return. Because today's airlines do not like inconveniencing passengers and upsetting the established infrastructure by completing flights far ahead of schedule. Mel grew up in Iuka, Mississippi, where his ability to pitch a baseball with either arm earned him the likely, unlikely nickname Dick after storybook sports hero Dick Merriwell. He played Class D baseball but was hooked on aviation after watching Katherine Stinson stunning in 1914. He enlisted during the Great War with dreams of dogfighting German Folkers, but was frustrated by his few flying lessons with French instructors. Complaining, I didn't learn a thing, he returned to Mississippi and went to work for the railroad, like his father. Dick Merrill had another chance at flying when he and a buddy brought a surplus Curtis JN4 Jenny in 1920 for $600. After scraping together enough for take flying lessons, Despite minimal experience, Merrill was soon barnstorming, then operating in one of the new airmail routes. His first schedule had him flying nights over the Appalachians between Atlanta and Richmond, not a recipe for longevity. One night, with fuel nearly exhausted, he had to roll the aircraft to bail out in his bulky winter flight suit. Lying injured in a field, he heard searchers wondering aloud where they might find the pilot's body. Here's the body, he called out. Because a young pilot was dedicated to safety and a teetotaler to boot, he survived aviation's wind-in-the-wires years when so many did not. Just as unusually, he prospered. By 1930, when airlines were taking over the airmail business, he boasted a two-year period when he never canceled a Pitcairn aviation flight and earned an impressive annual 13000 he supplemented his income by gambling, a risky enterprise he would pursue obsessively for years. Those earnings, a magician once offered to teach him tricks if he would share his dice-tossing skills, allowed the young bachelor to drive a flashy 1928 Packard Roadster through Richmond, sometimes accompanied by a pet cub lion named Princess Doreen. Harold Pickcorn sold his company to North American Aviation only a few months before the 1929 stock market train crash, and Merrill found himself flying for North American's Eastern Air Transport Division. Financial losses prompted the holding company to sell out to General Motors in 1933. The next year, GM appointed wartime flying ace Eddie Rickenbacker as Eastern's president. He acquired control of the airline in April 1938. Rickenbacker soon discovered Merrill's public relations value. With his quiet confidence and charm, Dick gained the trust of passengers, including Rickenbacker, who insisted on flying with him whenever possible. When EAL introduced its New York-Miami DC-2 service in 1935 with a VIP round-trip flight, Merrill was at the controls. It was the first of many promotional flights he would command, eventually piloting acceptance and retirement flights of each EAL aircraft type, often in record time. When the airline received its first constellation in May 1947, for instance, Merrill delivered it from Los Angeles to Miami in a record six hours, 54 minutes, and 57 seconds. Rickenbacker, never shy about publicity himself, 
gladly yielded the spotlight to Dick in an arrangement to help make the pilot the national hero while generating headlines for Eastern. In 1936, Rickenbacker quickly agreed with the captain requested time off to fulfill a thwarted dream. Merrill felt he had missed a chance in 1926 to beat Lindbergh across the Atlantic when two separate financial backers, one a riverboat gambler, bailed out on bankrolling an attempted New York-London flight. That ended Merrill's hopes of competing for the $25,000 prize dangled by hotel tycoon Raymond Ortigue. Determined to try for another record, Merrill found another financial angel and a co-pilot to beat and flamboyant showman Henry putting on the Ritz Richmond, who provided his new Volte V1A, then advertised as the world's fastest equipment. Harry, let's take that airplane and fly to Europe, Merrill urged at the Miami Beach Hotel where Richmond was appearing. Then we'll gas her up and fly her right back. It's never been done before. The single-engine Volte, with Merrill in the left seat, labored until the air from New York's Floyd Bennett Field on September the 2nd, 1936, bound for London. Heavy with fuel, the aircraft dubbed Lady Peace barely made it to aloft despite a 1,000 horsepower Wright Cyclone 62, or G2, compared to the standard 730 horsepower F2 model. The airplane's wings were stuffed more than, with more than 40,000 ping-pong balls to keep it afloat in an emergency, a precaution instigated by Richmond that looked wiser as violent storms soon forced the pilots to fly just above the waves. Still, when they finally touched down near Landio in Wales, they had made the crossing in 18 hours and 36 minutes, the fastest time then achieved. They continued to London the next day to receive a tumultuous welcome. Their return trip on May 14th was jeopardized when, according to Merrill, Richmond jettisoned 500 gallons of fuel into the ocean while the airplane was picking up ice, forcing a landing as soon as they reached Newfoundland. Rickenbacker had to mount a rescue mission with EAL personnel to hoist the Volte from a bog so the transatlantic pair could fly on to New York a week later. Merrill never forgave Richmond for his hasty decision. That's the end of Part 1. Stay tuned for Part 2. new Boeing 727 jet. Look how high the tail is. 34 feet. Look where they put the jets. In the tail assembly. That's one reason it's so quiet. The passengers are always riding ahead of the sound. Where does it fly to? I don't know. It flies north. You can hightail it on Eastern's new 727 jetliner to Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston. And a unique new dining service is worth riding home about. Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster Newberg, filet mignon with Bordelais sauce. Prepared as you like it. Eastern 727 Jet. Quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town? Come fly with Eastern. Eastern's Love Affair with Lockheed by Captain Bill Malone. Since its inception in the rear of a State Street garage in Santa Barbara, California, Lockheed has been ahead of the times with its manufacture of aircraft. As with Lockheed, so was Eastern ahead of its time. At the outbreak of World War II, no military planes could keep up with the Lockheed Model 10, known as the Electra. 
The airmail pilots on Karen Aviation pioneered the new capability of blind flying using the then New Sperry Artificial Horizon. The Lockheed Vega had the speed and range to make it all over the world, setting records unheard of at the time. Eastern Airlines was first to go off the airmail subsidy and become profitable on its own. The Lockheed P-38, known as the Lightning, was one of the most potent fighter aircraft in World War II. Eastern's Doug Davis won the Thompson Trophy in this travel air mystery ship in 1934. The Lockheed Constellation revolutionized air travel, making it as easy to fly from New York to Miami as taking the train from New York to Atlantic City. Eastern's president, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, persuaded the hotels on Miami Beach to stay open year-round and fill them during off-season with passengers flown in from New York. Lockheed built the L-188 prop jet Electra that was just a perfect transitional airline to the turbojet. Eastern Airlines created a training facility second to none, utilized by airlines all over the world. Using line pilots and instructors was an innovation, which kept the managers of flying abreast of problems out on the line. Eastern had a reputation of being pilot-oriented. There was distinctive cooperation between different departments. This quality had to exist in Lockheed because the company built such fine airplanes. Flying the Lockheed L-1011 was the greatest thrill of all. As little kids, we loved the excitement of the exploits of Wiley Post and Harold Gaddy and Lockheed Vega named the Winnie Mae. We saw Wiley Post on the Path News at the moving picture show as he climbed out of the cockpit after his around-the-world flight, the black patch over his eye, the wind blowing his hair. The pilot usually made his egress from an overhead hatch just behind the windshield, then climbed down the side of the fuselage. It would seem much easier to come back through the cabin and out the door, but it would not have been nearly so glamorous. In the days of long-distance record setting, they filled the cabin with extra fuel tanks. In this way, you could not get through. Amelia Earhart often cast a magic spell as she made her exit from her own Lockheed Vega. In 1928, Lockheed moved to Burbank and built Harry Tucker's gleaming white Vega trimmed with red and blue funnel stripes and equipped with a nine-cylinder, 425-horsepower WASP engine made by Pratt & Whitney. This was the first plane built in the new plant, and one destined to make the Lockheed name synonymous with speed. Captain Frank Hawks soon broke its transcontinental speed record in Lockheed's new parasol wing, Air Express model. Speed and distance records were being set all over the world by such notable aviators as Wilkins and Allison, Pat Post and Gaddy, and Roscoe Turner. Also setting records, Amelia Earhart, Jimmy Doolittle, Howard Hughes, Doug Davis, and the Lindberghs, to mention a few. From 1938 to 1935, you could hardly pick up a newspaper without reading about these adventurers and their thrilling flights. The Lockheed Vega became popular as a transport aircraft in 1929 when Roscoe Turner organized Nevada Airlines to fly between Los Angeles, Reno, and Las Vegas, and streamlined his Vegas with wheel pants. Movie stars and box office luminaries such as Clark Gable, Loretta Young, Fred McMurray, and Joan Bennett often made the trip in the four-place Lockheed Vegas. In the little town of Patterson, Louisiana, just west of New Orleans, 
millionaire lumberman Harry Williams and aircraft design genius Jimmy Waddell got together. They formed Waddell Williams Air Service, beginning with flights from New Orleans to Shreveport, flying Lockheed Vegas, and later expanding to Dallas and Fort Worth. Even without a mail contract during the Depression, Waddell Williams Vegas flew their fast schedules between New Orleans and Texas for several years. Later, they secured mail contracts as a result of powerful political connections. Waddell Williams became even more famous as makers of racing planes of superb craftsmanship. Roscoe Turner was one of the pilots to fly these famous racers, along with stunt pilot Joe Mackey, who later founded Mackey Airlines. Mackey Airlines eventually merged with Eastern. Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. Back in the 1960s and 1970s, and maybe a little bit later, hijackings of commercial aircraft to Cuba was quite a common occurrence, especially eastern airplanes. Did you ever wonder how these occurred or what went on during these hijackings? Well, here's a first-person account of the story of the hijacking of Eastern 401 by Tom Wildby, a young pilot's first flight as second officer on the DC-861. Eastern pilots had a bidding system, Section 28 of the pilot's contract, where we could, on a regular basis, bid for various equipment and duty positions in that aircraft based on our seniority. We were paid based on the gross weight of the aircraft and the duty position, so most pilots bid for the biggest equipment and the highest duty position that they could hold. When I was hired in 1967, I was assigned as a flight engineer on the Lockheed Electra, and by the Section 28 bid effective January 1, 1969, I was able to hold a DC-861 second officer bid. School for this position progressed satisfactorily, and the first leg of my first flight after checkout was a flight from New York Kennedy to Miami, operating Eastern Flight 401 on January 2, 1969. During the cruise briefing, we discovered that it was also Captain Dennis Van Hust's first flight on a DC-861 without an accompanying Czech airman. The first officer, J.R. Cooper, was the most experienced in that aircraft, and I believe that he'd been on it for six months. Our Miami-based stewardesses were Nancy Wilson, Kathy Geronimo, Linda Abolt, Kathy McCormick, and Katherine Tolan. As we walked out to our aircraft, we noticed that an Aeromexico flight was at the gate next to ours. Its flight number was also 401. All went normally throughout the boarding and taxi, and we took off at 9.52 p.m., expecting to arrive in Miami at 12.30 a.m., Soon after, we had reached our cruising altitude of flight level 350, 35,000 feet. It was obvious from an elevated noise level that a disturbance was taking place in the passenger cabin. Next, the cockpit door was opened by the senior stewardess, who was followed by a man with a gun, holding an 18-month-old boy. Adam Levy of Massapequa, New York, had been removed from his mother's lap by the hijacker 
on his way to the front of the aircraft, and a woman, Linda Grenage, later identified as his wife, holding an infant. The hijacker was holding his gun at the head of the boy he had taken. Understandably, this boy was very upset and crying, not to mention the anxiety of the mother. The hijacker told the captain that he wanted to go to Havana and kept repeating the words, Black Power Havana. He sat on the cockpit jump seat while the woman stood behind him. The gun was being pointed from the captain to the boy to me. I had one look at the gun, a revolver, and it was loaded. Recently, the FAA had introduced a transponder code for a hijacking. This was a method of alerting air traffic control of the situation without having to use normal radio communications. The hijacker had requested that we turn on the cockpit speakers so that he could hear all radio transmissions. The first officer smoothly set the hijack code into our transponder. At the time, the code was 3100. After several normal radio communications, without any confirmation that our code had been received, the first officer radioed, Eastern 401, squawking 3100. ATC responded with, Roger, Eastern 401, cleared to flight level 310. Oh, we see you're being hijacked. Needless to say, our crew all thought, thanks a lot, and the hijacker told us to shut down all communications. Now that our hijacker was sufficiently agitated, he told us, by now there was one more flight attendant in the cockpit, which was becoming crowded, to face forward and that he and the woman were going to change clothes. They appeared to have been wearing typical clothing, he in a Nehru jacket and slacks, and she in a skirt and sweater. They changed into African-style robes and left the former clothing on the cockpit floor. Eastern had been involved in several hijackings to Cuba before this flight, so appropriate navigation charts and rudimentary Spanish-English phrase cards had been placed in most of the cockpits, including ours. As we approached Cuba, we were able to make contact with local air traffic control, which cleared us to approach and land at Havana's Jose Marti International Airport. I remember the captain made a comment to the hijacker, who was holding his gun on the boy, to the effect that this was going to be his first landing in this type of aircraft without a check airman, and would he please not point the gun at the child. I also remember thinking, who would ever believe that? Landing was exceptionally smooth, and after taxiing to a parking stand, the cabin door was open, and the hijacker, the woman, and their infant were escorted from the airplane by Cuban military. Thinking that it would be a very interesting souvenir, I took the woman's skirt from the cockpit floor and put it in my flight bag. Next, a Cuban mechanic came in and asked if there were any write-ups. He said that he was a fully qualified DC-8 mechanic and would be happy to fix any minor mechanical problems. The captain politely refused this kind offer. He then asked if we wanted him to sign off the maintenance log. The answer was not quite as polite. We joined the passengers in a terminal building for breakfast of scrambled eggs, bacon, and coffee. Several cigar and liquor shops opened, and they appeared to be very successful in selling items to the passengers. A loudspeaker announcement called for the chief engineer to identify himself, and it took me a few moments to realize they were calling for me. I was escorted by two military types, armed with automatic weapons, to the ramp and asked if we were carrying U.S. mail. I said that we probably were and that it was usually located in the rearmost cargo compartment. They didn't want anything to do with that compartment for the rest of our stay in Havana. 
I was also asked to open the cargo doors. This caused me a small problem because my training had omitted any hands-on operation of these doors. That task belonged to maintenance, and I had been told, you'll never need to know that. Again, who would ever believe that the chief engineer couldn't even open cargo doors? Once the doors were eventually open, I was asked to supervise the emptying out of all the baggage. The Cubans searched the bags they were checked by the hijacker, who had been giving them the claim checks. But then, almost after an hour, they couldn't be located. We later discovered that nine bags had been loaded on Aeromexico Flight 401, parked next to us at JFK. By the way, since that day, I have never failed to insist on hands-on training in the operation of all external doors on new aircraft to which I was assigned. The three front-end crew members were interviewed by Cuban authorities and asked various questions about our flight. They asked for our names and the captain responded, Van Huss. The follow-up question, is Van your first name, elicited, no, it's Captain. That set the tone for the rest of the interview. I was very happy that they didn't search us because I still had my Marine Corps Reserve ID and really didn't want to get into my experience with targeting missile sites just outside Havana. The Cubans planned to bus the passengers 70 miles to Veradaro for transport back to Miami. This had been done in the past because the Cubans claimed that Havana's runway was too short for large aircraft. The captain told them that if the passengers did not come with us on our DC-8, then we just wouldn't take the blankety-blank thing back to Miami. In the end, Eastern sent two aircraft to Havana to collect 122 passengers. Fifteen others were sick, mostly with the flu, and were allowed to come with a crew on our DC-8. We arrived in Miami just after sunup and were greeted by customs officers who immediately confiscated any cigars or liquor that had been acquired by passengers in Havana. The crew was hustled into a debriefing room with FBI and security personnel, and we relayed as best we could the story as it had transpired. One specific question that came up was, what were they wearing? No one could remember much about what the hijacker had worn. But when it came to the woman, I said that I had some very accurate information and produced her skirt. The response from the FBI was not quite complimentary regarding the dexterity attributed to airline pilots. Identification of the hijacker, Tyrone Ellington Austin, had been determined after his bags were searched in Mexico City. That of the woman came to me years later. About three weeks after this event, I was called to the chief pilot's office to answer a question. Who had signed for 180 breakfast in Havana? I knew that I hadn't, and the captain, who had reported sick two weeks previously, couldn't answer. The Cubans had sent a bill to Eastern, and no one was quite sure who was responsible for signing the check. They charged Eastern $25 per meal. Captain Van Hus died of a heart attack in 1976, age 61. We lost a bona fide hero that day. On April 22, 1971, I received a call from the FBI. I was told they had been following Tyrone and that he had re-entered the United States through Canada. Evidently, the Cubans didn't want him either. The agent told me that he had bad news. Tyrone had been killed the day before while trying to hold up a bank in Manhattan. I missed the service. The FBI arrested Linda Joyce Grenage, age 39, living as Miss Linda Hazine Atina in Albany, New York, on July 25, 1988. She was charged with air piracy, interfering with the air crew with a deadly weapon, 
and interfering with the crew. Mrs. Grenage admitted her part in the hijacking, claiming Austin had beaten and terrorized her into cooperating with him. She pleaded guilty to the last and least serious charge, and in November was sentenced to six months plus four and a half years of probation. The judge gave her credit for good behavior and for time served since her arrest, and she served another month in jail. I'm not sure if anybody ever paid for the breakfast, and the FBI kept the skirt. Since the days of the ancient Mayans, one thing hasn't changed. When Mexican people celebrate, Mexican people dance. You can vacation in Mexico this year for the same kind of money you spent last year. Call Eastern or your travel agent. It's easy to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to This is called My Joan Crawford Experience by Fran Dowling. It's from the book The Wings of Many. Starting my flight attendant career in 1962, I was working in the coach cabin of a DC-8. After the meal service, I went to first class to get my crew meal. While in the first class galley, the captain rang for his steak dinner and I took one to him. A few minutes went by and the senior flight attendant asked me where Joan Crawford's steak was. So I had to explain to Mrs. Crawford that I had made the mistake of giving her meal to the captain. Seeing my embarrassment and declining the alternative of chicken, Miss Crawford replied, just don't give away my champagne. I took a bottle of champagne from the galley and put it in a bucket with ice, added a ribbon from my suitcase and tied it around the neck of the bottle. Then I took a paper cup and I wrote reserved for JC and gave it to her. She laughed and asked if she could keep she laughed and asked if she could keep the paper cup. At that point I wanted to give her the entire DC eight. This winter you need all the summer you can get. With Eastern Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern, the wings of man. You heard earlier a story written by the late Captain Bill Malone, editor of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association's magazine, Repartee. Bill was the editor of this leading pilot association magazine for 15 years. Other airline pilot retirement associations turned to Bill for advisement in publishing their magazines and newsletters. Bill also contributed to his stories during his editorship of Repartee. One of my favorites will be presented in four parts during the next few broadcasts.
Its title is The Compass and the Clock. Now, let's begin this very interesting story by Captain Malone, The Compass and the Clock, Part 1. The big, sleek Boeing 767 was knifing its way across the cold, crystal-clear Canadian sky. At the time, it was the newest and most sophisticated commercial aircraft in service. It could fly higher and more efficiently than any of the older generation of jetliners. The long white contrails following it gave evidence of the power being generated by its two big Pratt & Whitney fan jet engines. Suddenly, without warning, one of the contrails disappeared, then the other. Both engines had quit. Incredibly, the aircraft was out of fuel, and it began its long, fearful glide back to the ground. Technology in aviation has moved ahead at such a rapid pace, everyone involved has been hard-pressed to keep up. Computers perform calculation and store information that formerly was done in a most primitive way, namely by manual means. Radio operators used to type a, a log of the conversation that took place with the aircraft in flight. Flight crews kept their log of times over geographic checkpoints, along with ground speed of the aircraft, figured on a little circular slide rule invented by Elry Jeff Jeppesen. We call it the Jeppesen computer. Fuel consumption was also figured on these little pocket computers, and fuel aboard was measured first on the ground by sticking the tanks with a fuel measuring stick. This was used to confirm the reading on the fuel gauge in the, in the tile cockpit. Air traffic control centers were providing separation of aircraft aloft using the times reported by the aircraft over the stations and checking the flight crew's estimates with their own Jefferson computers. Seat-of-the-pants calculations also figured in Harold Hoff said. Uh, Harold Hoff said, you know, you were heavy taking off from Atlanta in the DC-4 when you looked at the water tank in College Park as you passed by. Even more primitive was our means of navigation. Just after World War uh, II, we were still finding our way along the light line, a series of rotating light beacons on the ground spaced along the airway. Each flashed an identifying signal with a white light, and the beacon at the airport was green. The old Adcock radio range gave us an audio beam to fly when you couldn't see the beacons because of bad weather. The volume knobs of our aircraft radios were worn smooth from constant adjustment of the changing volume. Close attention was given to bracketing the beam until the aircraft was over the station, indicated by the cone of silence, as we call it, and the marker beacon on the instrument panel. With the advent of both the Boeing 757 
flown by Eastern Airlines, and the later Boeing 67, a whole new technology was introduced. Eastern's Virgil Tedder, who is now search, uh, teaching in the Boeing 757 at Minneapolis, says the thing he likes best about the airplane is that pilots were involved in the design of the aircraft, and a lot of thought went into its development. Among its other many attributes, he likes its incredible performance. It has so much power, takeoffs with full load from small fields such as Midway Airport in Chicago, and stops quickly when landing. When a compromise was finally reached with the Airline Pilots Association over the use of a two-man crew in the cockpit, certain capabilities were required, among which was that the aircraft was to have a flight management system to monitor flight progress. Navigation functions could be programmed into the flight management computer, the FMC, which is even more accurate than the Omega system that uses radio fixes from ultra-low frequency stations around the world. The flight management computer aligns itself with true north and the Earth's rotation so the pilot knows where he is at all times. The flight path is programmed into the inertial reference unit, which is a navigational device utilizing laser gyros rather than gimbal gyros employed in the inertial navigation system. It is a system used to navigate our spacecraft. It is a piece of equipment with incredible accuracy, so much so that a small error has been built in to preserve secrecy. Another innovation is the ability of the Boeing 757 and 767 to automatically change power. At the altitude where the change over from indicated airspeed to Mach occurs, the aircraft computers handle the change in engine power. The airplane will level off at cruise altitude and set the cruise power automatically. The autothrottles will operate from takeoff through landing. Another innovation is that instrumentation is by means of the electronic flight instruments system called EFIS, which represents or presents the pilot with an image on the tube comprising the instrument panel. It is powered electrically, but has a standby gyro operated by the ship's battery. The pilot may select what he wants to see. All of the essential flight instruments are consolidated into a single attitude director indicator, a glide slope, flight director, instrument landing system, radio altimeter, and fast slow indicator. For redundancy, three inertial reference units, three instrument landing systems, and three autopilots are provided. In the case of a generator failure, engine failure normally will engine starting uh, normal engine starting or galley electrical overload. There is an automatic shedding of the electrical load. Electrically operates equipment. Uh, the auxiliary power unit picks up the load when it's turned on. The same concept of automation is used for flying the airplane.
Although not high volume electrical hydraulic pumps are available as a backup for engine driven hydraulic pumps. An alternate landing gear extension pump operates off direct current supplied by the battery. It opens the landing gear doors so the gear will fall, will free fall. Landing flaps are lowered by an alternate means utilizing an electric pump with power supplied by the APU, the auxiliary power unit. Virgil Tedder notes that there is a flip side to all this advanced technology. It is called reversion and is recognized by NASA as presenting a problem. When a pilot transfers from the Boeing 757, in which many of the functions are automatic, back to the Boeing 727, it is sometimes difficult to adjust to the many basic habits of the earlier aircraft in which these functions were accomplished manually. There comes a time when it is prudent for the pilot to disconnect all the automatic functions and fly the airplane manually. A case in point would be if you were suddenly notified by air traffic control that you were on a collision course with another aircraft and to descend immediately. The automatic functions of the flight management system would initiate the descent smoothly with passenger comfort as a primary consideration, whereas an immediate response is required. Reversion may have played a role in the flight of the 767 over Canada as they now found themselves in a power-off glide headed for someone somewhere on the ground. Eastern Airlines serves 26 of our 50 United States. But today, we look beyond assigned flight patterns, and we see the miracle that is America. Her names are written on the land, and the peoples who wrote them are diverse as the land itself. Polynesian mariners landed on the shores of this island from their outrigger canoes and called it Hawaii. The Spanish found this stretch of coastline lovely and named it the Jewel. La Hoya. An Indian tribe cut this name with the flint tip of a feathered shaft. Mojave. In the shadows of the Rockies, our conscience named a settlement Fair Play. Scandinavian mythology swept a plateau that rims the Grand Canyon and called it Valhalla. The French embraced the Mississippi with a parish and they called it Baton Rouge. Killing this Pennsylvania farmland, German settlers named it Heidelberg. The English settled Cape Cod and called the county Barnstable. E pluribus unum, one from many. This is the miracle we celebrate today. One nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. We celebrate not the final achievement, for there is much still to be achieved. We celebrate the promise, the progress, the hope. Most commercial airline pilots have lots of stories to tell. Some are scary, some are funny, 
Some are true, some are not true. Uh, and if you know our friend Captain Jim Holder, who comes on the radio show periodically, Jim is a great storyteller, but he'll admit sometimes his stories may be stretched just a little bit. But the thing is, you have to determine what's true and what's not in his stories. Well, here's a story called Did I Tell You? Memories of Captain Waller by Art Fergot Jr. And he writes, Dear Gene, in the past few issues of Repartee, had some good, interesting stories about Gil Waller. Gil was a good friend of mine, and we kept in touch until he passed away in February 1938. I had the honor to hear Gil tell one of his tall tales. Captain Gil Waller had already started the story when I wandered up to the group of hangar flowers around him. It happened back in 1923, he was saying. I was in the Army, detailed with a cameraman to take a DH-4 and make a mapping survey of a section of West Texas. The job was to take a week. Nothing out of the ordinary happened, although I did get frisky and loot the crate one day. When we landed, the camera operator acted a little peeved. He told me he didn't have a safety belt fastened when I looped and he had almost dropped his equipment. Some people get mad at every little thing. So we were on our last day's work, cruising along, minding our own business when two eagles loomed in front of the ship. I maneuvered out of the way of one of the birds, but the other crashed into one of the outer bay wing struts. The impact threw the plane out of control. When I regained my bearings, the controls were loose and sloppy. I looked at the broken strut, expecting to see part of the wing rip loose, but the wing was intact. The eagle, caught there, was still alive. It lodged somehow between the top of the strut and a brace wire. Several other wires were trailing behind the wing. I moved the joystick, but the ailerons did not respond. The crash had snapped the aileron control wires. The ship began to spiral tightly. We began to lose altitude fast. I knew we would end up in a spin if I did not do something immediately. I tried all the tricks I knew, but nothing seemed to work. I turned back to the camera operator and gave him a sign to jump and use his chute. He was not looking in my direction, but instead was watching the eagle on the strut. His eyes, which I could see through his goggles, were wide with astonishment. I followed his gaze. The eagle seemed to have revived. One of his wings was free, and he seemed to be making an effort to straighten it. You could see by his expression that it was very difficult, but he finally made it. The effect was noticeable instantly. The spiral loosened up. Soon we were making a wide turn. I looked intently at the bird, and he seemed to understand what he was doing. I motioned downward with my hand, and his wing went down. We were now in a straight glide. The terrain below was pretty flat, so there was little other maneuvering to do. However, we were flying downwind, so I motioned for a turn into the wind. As the eagle strived to obey, I could easily see that it was taking his very last bit of strength to dip his wings still further. I cut the engine, and we landed. I looked at the eagle. He was looking at me, and he smiled. The smile of a hero as he died. And that, concluded Captain Waller, is my story. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. 
And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern Shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. For many years, Captain Jim Holder was the editor of the retired Eastern Pilots Association magazine repartee. And in the issues, Jim would often include stories of his own. We've told a few stories in these memories, and here's yet another one. Thank you very much, Jim Holder, for the contribution you have made to the magazine in the past and the memories of a great airline in the future. Jim writes, Many years ago, I had a month-long Los Angeles layover trip with Captain Jack Tack. He was a pleasure to fly with, and I really enjoyed our trips and layovers, except for one flight to Los Angeles. As the passengers were boarding in Atlanta, one fellow came on dressed in khaki pants and shirt. The agent told the senior flight attendant that he had just been released from the VA hospital in Jacksonville, and to treat him well. However, right after takeoff at about 6 p.m., this fellow, I don't recall his name, immediately got out of his seat and started wandering around the rear section of the airplane. While doing so, he showed a romantic interest in one of the young flight attendants, which was certainly, certainly not welcomed by her. He was asked to take his seat, which he did, but immediately got up and, again, started trying to talk to the young flight attendant. This went on and on, and by the time we leveled off at cruise, the senior flight attendant had had enough of this and came to the cockpit to advise the captain. Well, Jack went back, and on came my oxygen mask, as it is required if one pilot leaves the cockpit. And again, talked with the fellow. He shared that he had been a World War II pilot and could understand some of the problems combat could leave on a soldier. This seemed to calm the fellow down. Nope. Within a few minutes, the senior called to say this time he was really bothering the young flight attendant, and this was disturbing the passengers. This time, Jack put on his hat and went back, and again on came my oxygen mask. I was hungry but could not eat our del delightful, delicious first-class meal under these conditions. Jack was gone for a very long time, so my mask was on a long time. More about that later. Jack came back clearly getting very angry with this fellow and said next time he was going to put him between some uniformed Marines way back in the coach section. Somewhere in this mess, the flight attendant had brought up Jack's dinner and put it on the jump seat. It appeared that the fellow was not going to leave the young flight attendant alone, so Jack told her to go to the cockpit and stay there for the rest of the trip. So she did, and in the darkness sat down on Jack's dinner. Since I was wearing my oxygen mask during all of this, 
Jack decided to stay in the cockpit so I can eat mine. Nice captain. Of course, things were going downhill back in the coach, so this time Jack went back and asked the two Marines to let them, him sit between them in the back of the coach, which they did with force. This enabled Jack to eat some type of a meal the flight attendant had fixed for him and also allowed me to take my oxygen mask off after wearing it about two hours. Of course, we had advised the company of what was going on, and they had all kind of law enforcement, including the FBI. Must have been a slow day at Los Angeles. They were waiting at the gate. They had done some investigating on this fellow and found that he had never been in the military and was just released from prison in Jacksonville, not a VA hospital. The lead FBI agent appeared to be in charge, and after all passengers and flight attendant had deplaned, he ordered the fellow to come forward into the first-class section, which he would not do. So the agent approached him only to be kicked by the alleged soldier. This was a bad move by him as all the agents, Air Force police, and others got in some wax to his head and body. Last time I saw him, his head was bouncing out the door and being drugged feet first up to the gate. Jack, as a captain, had to go testify at the trial in Los Angeles later on. I don't recall what sentence the fellow got, but I suspect he did not fly on an airplane for a long time. Jim Holder, Captain, EAL and ATA. P.S. Due to my wearing my oxygen mask so long, it filled my ears with O2, and about 2 a.m., I woke up with a terrible ear ache, which is normal. Again, thanks, Jim Holder, for the contributions you make to make these memories of a great airline so great for those of the Eastern family. This is a story from The Wings of Many by Marge Frost. It's called The Captain and His Coffee. In the mid-1970s, when my husband Jerry was a junior Eastern Airline captain, he tended to get trips that had him up and out of the house very early in the morning. One morning he had to rise and shine at 4.30, and upon emerging from his shower with his towel wrapped around him, he announced to me that he would like his coffee now. I politely told him that he was not God until he got on the airplane. He went into the kitchen, made his coffee, got dressed, and went off to fly his trip. Several months later, I had the privilege of riding along on a trip where Jerry was the captain. I had a comfortable first-class seat, got myself some warm smoked almonds, remember those, and a nice cocktail. About a half an hour into the flight, the handsome young flight engineer approached me, asking if I was Mrs. Frost. Well, yes, I am, I said, beaming with pride. He presented me with a small tray, which held a cup of coffee, a sugar packet, cream, and a spoon, and he smiled and said, I'm here to tell you that God wants his coffee now. That story held such happy memories for us. 
Well, it's been another great hour sharing the stories of Eastern Airlines as told by its people. Linda and Harry Lindquist and I have had the pleasure of being the radio voice during tonight's broadcast and hope you will join us again next week for another hour of Eastern history. Remember, we want you to be part of the Eastern story. All you need to do is email us a memory of or experience you remember about Eastern, and we'll include it as part of these broadcasts. You even might want to tell the story in your own voice, and we'll put it on the air. It's really easy to do. Most computers have a voice recorder and record using the MP3 or WAV format. All you need to do is turn it on, start talking, telling your story. It will save in the MP3 or WAV format that can be emailed to us. You can send it to emailholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L, holland at yahoo.com. We'll do the rest. We hope you will tell your Eastern friends about these Monday evening broadcasts at 8 p.m. And on behalf of Linda, Harry, and me, Neil Holland, we say good night, and we hope you have a great week. Good night, Eastern family.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.